Thank you, Matthew and team, so much for leading us this morning. I appreciate you guys and how much time and uh, energy and effort you put into leading us. So thank you so much. I was just thinking about how cute it was doing that baby dedication. How on earth am I going to follow that? <laughs> so uh, we're going to have to try. Uh, we'll see how it goes. Um, happy Family Day weekend, by the way, to you. Yes, it's Happy Family Day. <laughs> Absolutely. And uh, just a quick reminder to you that the, one of the ways in which we're marking Family Day uh, this, uh, this year is that we have uh, tonight, back here uh, at the church, we have a games night followed by Seven Oaks Got Talent, question mark. <laughs> no, no question mark. Seven Oaks has got talent. So uh, we're going to be, uh, just a reminder, uh, we're going to be opening the doors, that's the glass doors of the chapel, so please come in here, not over there. Um, around about 5.30, but we'll be starting around 6. And at the back of the uh, chapel, just under here, we're going to have tables laid out. So if everybody can kind of bring a snack to share, and we'll just put it on the table. Um, if you are baking something or making something, please bring an ingredients list, because not everybody has the same uh, you know, have sensitivities and so on with, with food and, and all of that. So just do that. And then from about 6 to 7.15, we're going to have board games going on in certain rooms. You can bring your own game. We're going to have activities in the gym, upstairs. Stairs, the youth room is going to be open, and there's things you can do up there as well. And then around about 7.15, we're going to come back in here, grab a snack, sit down for 7.30, and we're going to have our Seven Oaks Got Talent talent show. So looking forward uh, to that. We are in uh, 2 Corinthians, and we've been working through that since the beginning of January. And so we're just going to dive right into the passage this morning, starting at chapter 4, verse 1, and we're going to go to 12. It's a pretty dense and packed passage, so don't worry about it. There's a lot in there. We're going to work through uh, two or three things that we're going to kind of pull out from the passage, but this is what it says. Therefore, since it is by God's mercy that we're engaged in this ministry, we don't lose heart. We have renounced shameful things that one hides. We refuse to practice cunning or to falsify God's word. But by the open statement of the truth, we commend ourselves to the conscience of everyone in the sight of God. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, which is the image of God, who is the image of God. For we do not proclaim ourselves, we proclaim Jesus Christ as Lord, and ourselves as your slaves for Jesus' sake. For it is God who said, let light shine out of darkness, who has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. But we have this treasure in clay jars, so that it may be made clear that this extraordinary power belongs to God and doesn't come from us. We're afflicted in every way, but we're not crushed, perplexed, but we're not driven to despair. We're persecuted, but we're not forsaken. We may be struck down, but we're not destroyed. Always carrying in the body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be made visible in our bodies. For while we live, we are always being given up to death for Jesus' sake so that the life of Jesus may be made visible in our mortal flesh. So death in work in us and life in you. God's word to us today. Amen. There's a lot in there, hey? So uh, we're just going to kind of go through, and there's three things that I kind of want to pull out that I think are really important, things that I think Paul is trying to get across to the Corinthians, and by extension then to the church today, and what it means to you, and what it means uh, to me in our lives. So 
Paul has just been telling the Corinthians in chapter 3 about new covenant ministry, about how the kingdom has come close to humanity in the person of Jesus, but not everybody can see it. Some people cannot see the gospel of Jesus Christ. And if you remember last Sunday, if you were here when Pastor Zach preached, he, he reminded us of that story of Moses, where what would happen in the Old Testament is that Moses would go up the mountain into the cloud and meet with God, or he'd go into the tabernacle uh, in the cloud again to meet with God. And there was something about being face-to-face with the power of the divine that left its mark on him as a human. How could it not? And so what would happen is when he came down off the mountain or when he came out of the tabernacle, his face would glow. And the people would say, oh, Moses, we can't look at your face. It's just it's like too bright. And so Moses had to put a veil across his face. And so we looked at that last week, and, and Zach preached, and, 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 and then Paul, in chapter 3, as Zach explained, uses the idea of the veiling of Moses' face as a way of explaining that in his day, hundreds and hundreds of years after Moses, in the first century, when the Jewish people alive at that time heard the words of Moses, so the Old Testament was preached and shared, it was called the Torah in those days, remember there's no New Testament yet, It was the Bible Jesus had. It was the Old Testament. When they heard that, and maybe they heard it in the synagogue or in some kind of community gathering, young Jewish boys would hear it in synagogue teaching. Whenever they heard it, it's like they couldn't hear it. Paul said it was like there was a veil similar to the Moses idea over their minds, and they couldn't hear it. They couldn't comprehend it. So just like Moses had a veil over his face because people couldn't handle the glory So there was a veil of sorts over the minds of people during his day that prevented them from seeing the glory of the gospel. But when people turn to Jesus, the veil gets lifted and they can see. And there's that beautiful verse in chapter three that says where the spirit of the Lord is, there's freedom. So where the spirit is at work in people, cooperating with, you know, with people who are sharing like Paul and so on, the Spirit is doing his work. It's like the veil gets lifted, and all of a sudden there's freedom, because there's freedom not to be blinded anymore, but to see the truth of the gospel uh, of, the, of the Messiah. So, in the beginning of chapter 4 that I just read to you, Paul says, Therefore, because of all that, therefore, since it's by God's mercy we're engaged in this ministry, we don't lose heart, because it's not just down to us to have to do everything. God is at work. The ministry of evangelism and church planting and sharing the gospel and reaching the lost, declaring that the kingdom has come in Christ and so on, <clears throat> those things that Paul and the apostles are doing, although Paul suffers in that ministry and he's explained it throughout 2 Corinthians, he talked about it again in our passage that we just read, although he is suffering, he doesn't lose heart because this is the new age of the Spirit, where the Spirit's at work bringing freedom and he is trying to cooperate with what God is doing. It's like he's trying to put up the sail to catch the wind of the Spirit and follow what the Spirit is doing. Where the Spirit is, there is freedom. Paul switches again to a major theme of this entire letter. He's trying to deal with the accusations that are coming from the Corinthians, that is the Christians who were living in the city of Corinth and were in the church, who were saying, we're not really sure about Paul. We're not sure he's an apostle anymore. We're sort of mad at him for leaving, and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And so he starts to defend himself. He says, look, we, me included, have renounced shameful things. 
We've repented and we're right before God. And we don't use cunning to try to get people to believe. In other words, we're not snake oil salesmen, right? We're not peddlers of God's word. If you want to know who those are, those are the false teachers you guys are listening to, is, is kind of under the surface of what he's saying. We're not doing that. We're actually, uh, we don't do that stuff. We're preaching the gospel. And even when we share this gospel, much like the Jews hearing in the Old Testament, um, when they heard the Old Testament read, the gospel is also veiled somewhat. Our gospel is sometimes veiled. And he says, those who are perishing, what he means is all those people in the world who don't know Jesus, who haven't responded to the gospel, who are lost, who don't have the truth, all of those people have what? A veil, again, over their mind. He uses the same image. They cannot see. And I don't know about you, church family, have you ever been really, really frustrated? Where you think, if only my loved one, who I so long to respond to the gospel and understand the blessing of Jesus, or if only my coworker, if only my neighbor, if only they could see what I can see. If only they could experience Jesus like I experience him. I long for that. If only they could be impacted by the gospel the way I've been impacted, then they would understand. Then they would believe. And Paul then, what he does is he pulls back the curtain that separates the earth as we experience it and perceive it from the heavenlies, from the spiritual realm, and enables us to peer into it for a moment because he says the God of this age has actually blinded their minds, the minds of unbelievers. The God of this age is the enemy. It's Satan, the, the devil. We're getting, we're getting to see what's going on in the spiritual realm. Not all is as it seems here on earth, apparently. And many people have no idea that they've been blinded from seeing the truth and they cannot see. They are veiled and so the truth is opaque to them. Now, I want to get on to the next part of the passage here. I mean, we could spend a lot of time continuing to talk and wrestle with this, but let me share two things with you about it. Number one, it ought to remind us of the importance of prayer and evangelism. Because if we think it's all about us, if we think it's all about us going to share the gospel, and we don't actually remember, actually, we should probably be praying 10 times more than we're preaching, then we're going to struggle because it requires the Spirit, because where the Spirit is, there is freedom. It requires the Spirit to, to, to lift the veil from people in order that we can be led to them and share the gospel with them. We have to be faithful in sharing it, but at many times they, they, they hear us, but they don't see. They aren't able to see. They're, they're blinded, and sometimes it's for reasons such as timing. It's just not the right time, or for other reasons we don't understand. The veil doesn't get lifted, And so we need to be praying and praying and praying. And the second thing I want to say is there is this wonderful thing called provenient grace. And what that means is that the Spirit is already at work in the world. The Spirit is already doing His thing. He's already working in the hearts of people and lifting veils and so on. And if we're in cooperation with the Holy Spirit, sometimes we reach someone, we share the gospel, and they respond immediately. It's like, wow, God is already working in this person. And boom, what happens then is the kingdom comes. The kingdom comes in that place and in that moment. There's a ton more I'd love to discuss with you about it, but we need to move on. So um, uh, the point is this. When it comes to witness and evangelism, you need to pray, and then you need to pray again. Then you probably need to pray a little bit more, and then you're picking it up 
you need to pray again. So pray and pray and pray for witness and evangelism if we want to understand what I think Paul is getting at here. He then shifts the metaphor, right? He shifts the image. He shifts the picture. He goes from a veil over the minds and he goes to a, a clay jar. And the picture's coming up on the screen. That's a typical first century clay jar. We, we've moved to a different metaphor now. And he says this, but we have this treasure in, in jars of clay and clay jars so that it may be made clear to us that his extraordinary power belongs to God and it doesn't come from you and me. So what's he doing here? Well, again, I think he's doing at least a couple of things. I'm going to start with the first one, which if we understand the context of 2 Corinthians, and we've been working on that over the last few weeks, if we understand the context, we know one of the things Paul is doing is he's having to defend himself from attacks that he's not an apostle, or he's not a good speaker, or he's not this, or he's not that. And so I think it's partly a defense of his apostleship. Let me help you understand why I think that. Uh, one of the theologians that I, I like to read is, is Tom Wright, and Tom Wright tells this story of when he was a, a younger man and he was in school. One of his professors, who was a professor of Oxford, an Oxford College, and was later then a head of a bank, and he's very, very young, so he's this accomplished guy, just a young guy, and he had these amazing positions that he was given. And shortly after the Second World War, in the early 50s, when NATO was just being formed and the Cold War was beginning, he was actually given the role of ambassador, British ambassador, to the United States. And what that meant was that this man, for, for a time, and then he eventually went back to be a professor, for a time, he was a little bit of a confidant to the, to the American president and the British prime minister. So powerful, powerful people in the world. And part of what he, had, what he was overseeing was he would actually oversee top secret information that would go between white, the White House and Downing Street. And he would oversee some of the communications that would go between them. And people were obsessed with espionage and the Soviets and all this kind of stuff. And they were really nervous about secrets getting out. And so he didn't trust the phone because people could bug the phone. So what they had is they had what's called a diplomatic bag. And the diplomatic bag would contain these secrets that would go between the two countries. But you know what he'd do when he had the most top secret of all things? When he had the top, top secret, things you'd never want to get into the enemy's hand, he put it in an ordinary envelope, put a stamp on it, and sent it through the mail. It was like a double bluff. Because spies were not looking for regular mail, where there's bills and Christmas cards and things like that. It was a double bluff. Paul is saying, you guys in Corinth are getting confused. God has placed the most important message of all time to humanity, and he's put it in the regular mail. He's not given it to Caesar. He's not given it to famous Caesar, the most powerful man in the world, to come and declare to the world. He's put it in me, Paul. And you're misunderstanding. He's put it in a clay jar, me and the apostles. And you're looking at me and saying, well, this Paul keeps changing his travel plans and we're not sure we can really trust him. He keeps suffering. And actually, we don't think suffering is something a victorious apostle should be experiencing. He should be victorious over those kind of things. He's not much to look at. He's not a great orator. In other words, he's not a great preacher. He's left us here, and we're not really sure if we should even call him an apostle anymore. And what Paul says in response is, quit looking at the ordinary envelope, will you? And open it up and see what's inside it. 
Stop looking at the clay jar and peer inside instead to see the message that will turn this world upside down. God is doing a double bluff to the powers and authorities in the unseen realm and in the world, and he's using clay jars like the apostle Paul, but within him is hidden the most precious treasure of all, the story of his son dying on a cross, paving the way for us to live and to have life in all of its fullness, to have access to the triune God and one day get to participate in the new heavens and the new earth. That's the message that's in Paul, and it's the best message any human will ever hear. The treasure may well be in clay jars, which are fragile, and they can break, and they're disposable, but the treasure that matters is the treasure that matters, not the clay jar. It's the top secret document that matters, not the envelope. So get over your reasons for thinking I'm not an apostle and see the gospel. Don't confuse message and messenger. I think that's partly what Paul is doing. But the other thing that I think is really important, and this will maybe connect to you and me a little bit more, is as well as defending his apostleship, is the encouragement that clay jars, like me and like you, also can contain this treasure. Now, we're not first century apostles, but we can contain that treasure also. And guess what? We do. If you know Jesus, you do. We are clay jars, and for some of us, I think, we think, well, I'm I'm not sure that uh, I'm that useful to Jesus in the kingdom. Um, I'm not sure Jesus would use me because I'm too broken. I have too much of a past, so really I'm kind of disqualified from what you're talking about. Or I don't think I'm really smart enough or I don't know the Bible or theology well enough or whatever it is. It's true that we're clay jars. We have bodies that age and break down and we have unredeemed parts of our personalities and we don't always think and act perfectly with moral thoughts and desires and we say and think and act in ways that don't perfectly reflect Jesus. Of course we do, we're humans. We have finite energy and finite resources and finite capacities and capabilities. We are clay jars. The age is coming, though, where we won't be anymore. The age is coming at the twinkling of an eye, at the sound of the trumpet, where we will be raised imperishable and we will put on imperishability. And all of a sudden, we'll be the kind of people with the thoughts, attitudes, words, and actions that are redeemed and perfected. We'll be like we were supposed to be. And then we won't be clay jars anymore, but have bodies that are fit for the new heavens and the new earth, we will actually get to participate in new creation. But for now, we are clay jars. But in us is this amazing treasure, the light that shines in the darkness that John talks about in chapter one of his gospel shines within us. And we get to participate with Christ through the Spirit in God's will being done on earth as it is in heaven, we get to live and walk with Jesus and step with the Spirit, discerning our call in each season. And at times that light shines through the cracks in our jars. And at times that happens when the veil is being lifted from somebody's eyes and all of a sudden the kingdom comes. So understand the treasure within is vital. And honestly accepting that we're clay jars also means that we can't ever boast about it. Because it's God's power, and we're just the container. The final part of the passage says this, and then we'll close. 
We're afflicted in every way, but we're not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair, persecuted, not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed, and always carrying in the body the death of Jesus and so on. I don't know about you, but I'm really glad to see that Paul was perplexed sometimes. Does anybody ever feel perplexed? I do. (laughs) So I'm glad Paul was perplexed, and he he was. Um, Here we have Paul again describing his suffering. And what Paul is saying is that um, you, you Corinthians need to understand that a suffering is not a sign of divine displeasure with me. It's not actually a sign that I'm not really a, a depo- an apostle. Suffering is actually just part of the lot of a disciple of Jesus. It's how we identify with the Christ we serve. It's part of being human and living in a broken world and in broken systems and in a broken society and in a broken world. It goes with the territory. But also, do you remember something he said back in chapter one? I'm going to read it for you. You don't have to try to remember. He, he said something back in chapter one, and we talked about it a few weeks ago in, in early January. This is what he said, verses eight and nine of 2 Corinthians 1. We don't want you to be unaware, brothers and sisters, of the affliction that we experienced in Asia, for we were so utterly unbearably crushed that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt we'd receive the sentence of death so that we wouldn't rely on ourselves but God who raises the dead. When Paul is describing his experience in Asia, remember that's modern-day Turkey and probably in Ephesus is probably what he's talking about. It was so bad that Paul and his friends despaired of life. It sounds like they were close to being suicidal. Despaired of life itself. Here Paul is talking about in chapter 4, the suffering is so bad because we're afflicted in every way, we're perplexed, persecuted, and struck down, but, 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 we're not destroyed. God has not forsaken us. We're not driven to despair and we're not crushed. Now, it could be that he's not referring to the same thing in Asia, the same experience, but I wonder if there's a sense of hindsight here that Paul is having. He's able to look back now and realize that even though it was so bad, God never abandoned us during those times. It could be, it could be that. So often it's the case that when we look back on something, we finally are able to see more clearly and we see the fingerprints of God on our situation. But when we were in it, it was so foggy and so awful and so terrible and we couldn't see and it was gray and we wish it was black and white. But with hindsight, when we look back, we say, that's what God was doing. I'm so glad he did that. Even though it hurt and pained me, I'm so glad he did that because look at all that's happened. That is so often our experience. It doesn't take away from how the person felt in that moment. Without coming out the other side, without hindsight, it's very dark indeed. And so the encouragement for you and me today, church family, is this. If you're in a dark place of suffering, of bereavement, of loss, of temptation, of a battle with addiction, of feeling that you're losing at every aspect of your life, of depression and anxiety and loneliness, and on that list could go. If you're in that place, take the encouragement of Paul who says, it may feel like you're being crushed, and of course it feels that way. But take the encouragement that you are not destroyed 
you are not utterly crushed. There is hope, there is prayer, there is the people of God to lean on. There's a call to trust that you too can and will be able to look back with some high, high, um, hindsight and see, oh, that's, what I, that's where God was when I was suffering. And he will never leave me nor forsake me. So three applications. Number one, let's not be unaware of the spiritual battle that we're in when it comes to evangelism and witness. It's easy to forget that because we can't see through that curtain all the time. Most of the time it's closed off and we're having to live by faith. But be aware and, 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 and pray and pray and pray that the Father would remove the veil so people can see the glory. So if you're sharing the gospel or witnessing to people, you need to be praying far more than you're talking, probably. Secondly, let's remember that we're clay jars, right? And some of us may feel that we've got so many cracks in us, we're not sure if we're even a discernible jar anymore. But it's not about the jar. That's what we've learned in this passage. It's not about the jar. It's not about the envelope. It's about what's in it. It's about the gospel. It's about what's contained inside. And inside is the most precious treasure the world could ever know. And this extraordinary power is God's, and it's not yours, and it's not mine. You're carrying something of great value. You are not disqualified. You are not too sinful. You are not too this or that. Again, it's not about you. Yes, we need to be submitting to God's will and growing in Christ-likeness and seeking sanctification and trying to become more like Jesus. Of course, we're supposed to be doing those things. But we don't wait until we've perfected ourselves before we think we can ever be used by God because guess what? Not one of you will ever be used by God. It's not how it works. You're called to carry and steward this message and take it to its destinations faithfully and pray that God will be at work where it goes. And finally, if you're in a place of dark, dark um, discouragement, be encouraged from Paul's experience, despite at times suffering so much that he felt like he was close to death, He's elsewhere able to say, but we weren't destroyed in those moments. I wasn't completely crushed, and I definitely wasn't forsaken. And it felt unbelievably dark at the time, but with hindsight, I'm able to testify this way. And so for you, even when the darkness closes in in your life, look up, friends, because there's always a pinprick of light in the dark cave. There's always a sliver of light that you can reach for. Look up to see who's with you. Look up to see who's beckoning you through the valley. Look who your hiking partner is. Amen. Amen. Matthew, team.